think I'm doing those eyes. <laughs> I think I'm in love. It was terrifying. The pain, the, the fear of being eaten. I was drowning at the same time. I just accepted that I was going to die. Was there a bit of fandom for you when it came on? Oh, huge. And I did not try to hide. <laughs> did not try to hide at all. Out of the Box with Serge Negus on FBI. Thanks to Alex Pine for the last few hours of music and Sydney Culture News. If you missed anything on mornings, you can head to fbiradio.com to catch up on anything there. Now, when it comes to really big crime stories that shake up Australia, the ones that horrify, make people demand justice, really capture the public's imagination, you might take the reporting on them for granted. But there's always someone behind the words or the camera or the soundbite, someone who has had to face the gritty facts behind the best and the worst aspects of humanity. Well, my guest on the show today is Dan Box. He's a Walkley Award-winning national crime reporter for The Australian and is no stranger to the dark side of society. He's reported on and written a book about the bizarre circumstances surrounding the death of the first Australian soldier in Afghanistan. He's reported on the Royal Commission into Child Abuse and spearheaded a print campaign to challenge the country's double jeopardy laws to resolve the disappearance and murder of three young Aboriginal kids in a regional New South Wales town, the infamous Bowerville murders. Dan Box, thanks for coming on the show, mate. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Now, you're probably best known to our listeners for your podcast, Bowerville, which yeah. is about the disappearance of three kids from an Indigenous community in northern New South Wales. But yeah. for those of us who don't know about that case, can you give us a bit of a background? Yeah, it's at its heart, it's an unsolved serial killing. And whoever's responsible for that serial killing is still walking around free today. Basically, 25 years ago or thereabouts, three Aboriginal children disappeared over the course of about five months, all from one tiny little village um, called Bowerville. Now, when you go to Bowerville, the thing that really strikes you is you go down to the Aboriginal mission, which is in the, the south of the town, and you look at the houses from where they disappeared, and they are about... The houses where those three kids were staying at the time they disappeared about 100 metres apart. And so you stand on that one street and you look up the road and you see, you know, Evelyn was living there, Clinton was living there, Colleen was living there, and they've all gone within that period of time. And whoever's responsible is not in prison. And it's once you've been there, it's very hard to let it go. And what, like, I mean, what does it tell you about the case if they're all in such a close vicinity? Does it give you a clue, I guess? Oh, it makes you... Th- makes you think that one person was involved and it goes beyond that with that particular case because there is evidence and when you lay it out and you look at all the evidence together it's uh, I've got legal sensitivities as yeah, to exactly yeah. how I can describe it but it's um, I think I can probably say it's compelling evidence mm. that the same person was seen at the party at which Colleen disappears. She was last seen walking down one side of a house. He was seen walking down the other side of the house. He was then seen at the party where Evelyn disappears. She's sleeping in the room with her mum. He's seen leaving the house in the early hours of the morning. She's not there in the next she's not there the next day. And then the, the third of the kids to disappear, Clinton, is actually sleeping in this man's caravan when he disappears. And Clinton's body's found. And when his body's found, he has one of this man's pillowcases from his caravan shoved down the front of his shorts. So there's evidence like that, and there's, there's other evidence as well. And when you look at it, it does make you wonder. That said, I've spoken to the man, and he said he had absolutely nothing to do with it. And 
in those kind of cases, what are the rules and the laws around someone like that being able to get away with it or not be retried? Well, that's the thing, and I've got to stress this, he didn't get away with it. He was found not guilty Hmm. twice. So he was put on trial for two of the murders separately. So Evelyn, who was four years old, and Clinton, who was 16. Hmm. And in each case, he was found not guilty. Now, the decision to hold the trial separately is probably is significant in that the judge decided we're going to hold these trials separately. So when I'm hearing the evidence about, say, Clinton's death, I will hear no evidence whatsoever about any of the other kids that disappeared. So the jury will never know that other children disappeared in a similar way from the same town at the same time. So obviously the evidence then becomes a lot more weak. Mm. Now, that's not to say that the man was, was wrongly found not guilty. He was found not guilty in that stands. One of the challenges with the way our law works, and the more I do crime journalism, the more I run up against this. I was dealing with it today with another parents of another missing guy. The way the law works is that once you're found not guilty, something called double jeopardy kicks in, which means that you cannot be charged with that offence again. So if you are found innocent of a murder... Even if you did do the murder, say, you cannot be charged with that murder again unless really fresh, new, compelling evidence comes to light. For example, the police go back and do a DNA review because they couldn't do it at the time and they find your, your DNA all over it. But without that, once you're found not guilty, that's it. What's the basis of the, the double jeopardy law in that oh, respect? Well, look, it's, it, is, it is really interesting, and this is where... The more I look at the kind of the justice system and the law, the more I do actually think it's beautiful, the way it works. Double jeopardy is, as I understand it, was essentially a principle that was set up going way, way back, so sort of medieval feudal times, when the king or the lord had essentially complete control over the state. And if he wanted to punish you, he was going to punish you. And one of the ways he might punish you would be to use you know, the, the justice system. He could have effectively his police, the Lord's police, charge you again and again and again with the same crime. So when the law developed and things became more fair, and there was essentially this kind of upsetting of this old feudal system, one of the principles that was set in place was double jeopardy, to stop people being persecuted by a powerful state. And it it is really important. It is really important and it really works. But what it doesn't do is necessarily protect the victims. Because, as an example, if you're found guilty of a murder, you can appeal that decision to the appeal court. If you're found not guilty, the victim's family cannot appeal that decision to the appeal court, Mm. as it stands. It's pretty wild. And, I mean, what for this particular case in Barrowville, what was it that kind of drew you to that case? It's three dead kids. Look, I got involved in that case essentially um, because I sat down with a cop. I sat down with a homicide detective who told me about the murder and the second murder and the third murder. And I thought, you know, he'd asked to meet me, which never happens in journalism. You don't get cops asking to meet journalists. It's the other way around. And I thought we were just going to have, like, you know, a nice cup of tea, uh, a how do you do, and, and on your way. Two hours later, we're inside the homicide department and he's pulling out documents. He's going through boxes saying, have a look at this, have a look at this. And he's saying, he'd been working that case for 20 years and he's saying, something is not right here. And he he wanted to recruit me to, essentially, look, I probably got used as a journalist, 
a policeman wanted me to do reporting on the case because it would attract more attention and if it attracts more attention he might get more, more resources and things might change which is ultimately what happened yeah. as a result of his work in the police and the family's campaigning and, and some of the other stuff that we did at the paper but he was trying to drive his investigation in any way he knew how and i guess like then moving forward then into yeah. creating the podcast yeah. itself i mean what were you hoping to achieve with the podcast <laughs> something very simple I'm a newspaper reporter, yeah. and I'd been trying to get the Barrowville murders into the paper. And I've got to stress, I'm not the first reporter to do this by any stretch. There's a lot of good work has been done over the last 25 years by different reporters. Particularly the ABC has been very good. But by the time I came on the scene, no one was really interested in it. So I was trying to get the paper interested, and I maybe every so often I'd get a story down the bottom of page two, which is where we put stories that are boring but important. And I'd quote the family, and they'd say something, and, and it would just be words on a page. And words on a page, it turns out, can be ignored quite easily. Mm, mm. So the idea of the podcast was to record these families in their own voices and then let people hear the victims' families' voices telling their own story. Because then you can hear the emotion in their throat. You can hear, you know, that catch when someone's trying not to cry? Of course, yeah. You can hear that. And it, it turned out that that was a lot more powerful than I thought it was going to be. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I guess crime has been the most successful podcasts that have existed yeah. you know, so far, pretty much, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, like yeah. It, I mean, your serial, yeah, S-Town as well is, is yeah. kind of a... It sells itself as a crime it does, story but without yeah. giving away too much. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It's very interesting stuff. But look, we're going to get into the music, though, because it yeah, is a music okay. show. Now, the first song you've brought on is the Bushwhackers Lime Juice Tub. <laughs> now, I mean, what the hell have you brought yeah, on this? this I brought this on because I wanted to be publicly ashamed. <laughs> now, I brought this on because the kind of the idea I got for this this was that you kind of tell your own story through eight different songs or whatever. Um, and if you want to go back to the start of who I am, then it is kind of this song. <laughs> so, basically, well, let me. I, I, I can explain that. I was born in Australia to British parents, but moved back to the UK when I was about 13 months old. So I grew up in the middle of the English Midlands, where life is dark and grey and, and boring. And, but I knew that I was Australian. And I wanted, ever since I was how, as, as old as I can remember, I wanted to go back to Australia. And when I was growing up, my parents used to play the Bushwhackers almost on rotation. It's and, it, you, you know, it used to echo through the house. <laughs> Australian folk music generally, but the it's, Bushwhackers particularly. It's so cliché. Like no, it is cliché. <laughs> but you've got to allow me the cliché because it's also true. Um, so when I was a kid, I would... Around the house, we had the Bushwhackers echoing out and particularly this song. And to me, it was extra important because I was Australian and I wanted to go back to Australia. So as desperately uncool as this song is, <laughs> it's massively important to me as a kid. Well, let's whack it on, I guess. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> when shearing comes, I down the drum, step to the ball, chip brand new chums with a rhyme roo, rub it up, dub, send you home in a lime juice tub. Send you home in a lime juice tub. Now since you've crossed the briny lick, you reckon you can see a sheep with a rhyme roo, rub it up, dub, send you home in a lime juice tub. Send you home in a lime juice tub. Here we are in New South Wales, sharing sheep as big as wild. Leather necks and daggies out, faces tough as a rusty nail. There's puppies, sons, and brand new chums, reckon they're the greatest guns. Fancy they can shear the wall. Buggers can only tear and bow. Buggers can only tear and bow. 
Mr. Lily Swipe the rock, roll up and get the sack Once more away on the wallaby track Come on, let the work out back Here we are in New South Wales Sharing sheep as big as wild And necks and daggers out Faces tough as rusty now The road from off the back, so down the line. At the sun, take a big long look. Reckon it's time to press the cup. They camp it up to their feet doors. Sleep upon the dirty floor. With a banner and a fire and a sheet of art. Fall up of a damper in the dark. And here we are in New South Wales. Sharing sheep as big as whales. Lather the Faces tough as rusty now. You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus, and today my guest is Dan Box. He's the national crime reporter for The Australian and the host of the Bowerville podcast. Now, mate, can you tell me about how you came to journalism? Was it something that you kind of always wanted to do or did you fall into it? No, I wanted to be a paleontologist when I was growing up, which is a dinosaur archaeologist. That's pretty cool. And I guess that kind of fits um, with being a crime reporter, right? Not at all. No? Not at all. <laughs> it would have... I, it would have been a brilliant job, and I don't know why I gave it away. At some point growing up, probably those complicated teenage years when you got more hormones and sense, yep. I decided I wasn't going to become a paleontologist and I was going to become a journalist. And the only thing I can sheet it back to, and, and I'm, I'm basically going to trade in cliches with this for the whole of this show. <laughs> when I was I growing up, like newspapers in my house had a reverence. Like They would always be, it was always The Guardian, and it was always there on the breakfast table and one or both of my parents would read it and when they were reading the paper you were quiet because the paper was important <laughs> you know i mean no one ever said that oh, yeah. but that was the impression yeah, i, I got growing up I get it. and i i i can only think that i looked at that and i thought i want to be a part of the thing that is so important well, no, i i get that because i remember going I can't wait for the day that I can actually legitimately read a paper and actually know what the hell he's talking about. You know what I mean? Like, I remember being so young and going like, I'm, I'm reading the smallest pieces of the Daily Telegraph yeah. now because they're the only things I can digest. But like, I actually can't wait to the day that I can literally yeah. read one properly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, when we were younger, papers were a bigger deal. Yeah, yeah. You don't see them so much anymore. And it honestly makes me sad. Yeah. yeah. Genuinely. Fair enough. No, I totally because agree. Because I because I work for one of them. Yeah. <laughs> but without the bias aside, it's yeah. true though. Like, you know, like these days everyone's just on their computers and like yeah. that's how you're reading it. But yeah, yeah. there was a very, yeah, very tactile, nostalgic kind yeah, of yeah. thing about papers back and in the day. I still that get it. On, on a weekend, you get the mm. weekend paper, which has got, you know, the magazine and the sports supplement and you, you take a bit of time and you step back from life and you're quiet and you, you just indulge in it. And yeah. I... Love that. Fair enough. And so, so what did that mean for you? Like, do you, do you, you went to uni? Where'd you Where'd you go to uni? I went to uni in the north of England, so a city called Leeds. Um, That's right. Ah, yeah. I'm not saying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They were yeah. both big at the time I was there. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> look, it's a great city. Um, and when I was there, because I'd convinced myself I wanted to become a journalist, I spent a lot of time working on the student newspaper. 
as a reporter nice. and, and news editor and just kind of worked up from there and then just I just kept kept on rolling from there it's amazing well look you've got two songs that you brought yeah. on for this section you brought on Roots Maneuver yeah. Witness and Tricky Black Steel we can play the both of them back to back so why have you why have you brought these on that relate to this All right, so point in time look the Black Steel right basically Black Steel is originally a public enemy track as you'll know mm. and it is a seriously aggressive political track. It's the kind of stuff that if you wanted to tell people all the politics in that and get your message across and you were dead serious about it, you would bore them to death. No one wants to hear serious politics stuff. But what Public Enemy do is they tell it in a story. Yeah, yeah. So you've got this, this, you know, this bloke saying, I got a letter from the government the other day. And because it's a story, you're just swept up in it. And that is the trick of journalism. Your job is taking facts and giving them to people in a way that they'll want to digest them. And if you just give them a list of boring facts, they will never bother to get to the end of your list. But if you can tell them a story, then they're into it. Witness the Fitness by... And the reason, to, the reason for the Tricky version is just Tricky's a British artist. He was mm. part of that kind of massive attack and Porter's Head movement. And it's just it's, it's a beautiful version of that track. So that's, that's, that's the... Um, that's that. The other one, which is Witness the Fitness by Roots Maneuver, this is another seriously good track. But the reason to include it is that when I was a student journalist, I, for some reason, I ended up doing a bit of music journalism. Because it was. <laughs> some reason. It, yes, because well, it's Everyone fun. Everyone here. Everyone here, but it's fun. <laughs> hey, you know, you use journalism as a way to go and meet your, your favourite bands and yeah, go to their shows. Yeah. And. With Roots Maneuver, I was supposed to be the review in his concert, and I was desperately excited because he's good. He is good. He yeah, is good. Great. And I, I got so wildly drunk before the concert <laughs> even started, they wouldn't let me into the building. Oh. Despite the fact I was, you know, saying, but I'm reviewing it for the lead student paper. And they threw me out. And the reason I've been thinking about this the last few days, and for me it's a kind of slightly symbolic of the fact... <laughs> I think I wasted quite it's, a lot it's of like, it's like, your, it's like your version of um, Almost Famous. It. Almost Famous. I haven't seen it. You haven't I'm seen sorry. it? No, That's I a classic like journo going hanging out with the Rockstars movie. That was exactly what I wanted to do, but yeah. they wouldn't let me in because I was an idiot and I got drunk. And to be honest, most of my university, I think I wasted opportunities by being an idiot and getting <laughs> too drunk. So there's, a, there's an element of that. But they're both good songs. Banana clan, witness the fitness, the prophet's living. 
One hope, one quest. Witness the fitness. The prophets turn their back. One hope, one quest. Witness the fitness. The prophets turn their back. One hope, one quest. Witness the fitness. The prophets turn their back. One hope, one quest. Triggering that deep root juice. Now we're there burning boots. Set them spirit, them loose. Go ahead, go slash up the noose. With conclusive proof about the truth, the right. Cause whether we can shy, go push bike, or travel kind of trash. Manifest that with oats and roots wrap. Manifest that, yeah. I do my same way. Ain't nothing else I know. Gone up in the life with this ragged bone. Flow squeeze the pain from my belly and set my soul free. Travel over ocean, land and sea. Face enough stress and difficulty. Flung back from the brink. Whining kind of stink We don't give a frig about what them fools think Frig your network, our network will speak for itself Proof of the trophy and the champion belt Come sun, come rain, come hailstone pelt Witness the fitness The prophets and Levant One hope, one quest Witness the fitness The prophets and Levant One hope, one quest Witness the fitness The prophets and Levant One hope, one quest Yeah Wanna see me with some old time shit Let the old world know we saw some old key tip Megamanic, when time the pressure start lick By the hook or by the crook, by the poop or by the kick He sickly cryptic, spitting the code And most proud to present that Crawford mode And it shows that that bro's done Seen a few slights, life rose scenario Reality bites, we in collision with the beast Lost to religion, now we can't get no peace Idiot, peacock, run for tech, I for chief Stoop to the level and we plotting cold grief but we should know that discipline make up the geese Separation of the dat from the rat, that's a must Proceed set speed with the Crawfordton touch Proceed set speed Crawfordton, y'all Witness the fitness The Crawfordton living One hope, one quest Witness the fitness The Crawfordton living One hope, one quest Witness the fitness The Crawfordton living One hope, one quest Witness the fitness
My name is Serge Negus. My guest today is national crime reporter for the Australian, Dan Box. He also hosts the Bowerville podcast. Um, but look, now you've described yourself as a bit of a boomerang pom. Obviously, mm. with the accent, we can kind of hear that. Yeah. You moved to Australia in your early 20s and moved back and forth for the last sort of 15 years or so. Yeah. Um, in the moment, we're going to play a song that reminds you of living in Bondi, a very iconic part of Sydney. But, you know... Can you tell us first how you kind of got into crime reporting itself? Because we've talked about how you became a journalist, mm. but w- yeah, when did you actually take that step into crime reporting? Like, like a lot of steps, you know, you don't take it yourself, it's kind of taken for you. Mm. In that I was, I was kind of pushed that way. But growing up, my journalistic hero, and still is, is a guy called Nick Davies, he used to work for The Guardian, he's just retired. He did um, a lot of the phone hacking stuff, in fact yeah, he broke well. the phone hacking stuff in the UK. But before that, and early in his career, he was a crime reporter, and he specialised in just going out and finding real people that you'd never heard of, just normal people who were in usually tragic circumstances. And I'd read these things at the breakfast table, you know, having stolen the paper from my parents, and it was just, for me, it was what journalism was for, and it was how it was supposed to be done. And he's also a beautiful writer. And... I kind of basically have always wanted to be like him and crime reporting was kind of a way of getting into that world because the thing about crime reporting there's two things about crime reporting that really count for me is one you see people at their at their most vulnerable because you know they've just lost their son's been murdered or you know their wife has disappeared things that no one should ever have to deal with just really brutal brutal things and you see them when they're that exposed and you see them at their strongest because the same people will stand up like a I was covering an inquest today an investigation into a death of a guy and his parents spent the best part of 10 years looking for his body Mm. going out on their own and searching for his body digging into the ground to try and find where he'd been buried that kind of bravery and courage and determination you see the two things together in crime reporting and the other thing I like about crime reporting is, is there's very few spin doctors. Yeah, okay. Which in journalism is just a relief. Yeah, yes, I can vouch for that one. But I mean, seeing all of that though, yeah. especially the trauma, I mean, mm. does that not wash, on, wash off on you at all? Yeah, like, no, it does. It, it absolutely does. Like, do you have moments where you literally just have to go, no, nah, sorry, I'm out of here. I've got to, I'm, I'm just done for a few weeks. I need, I need my time. It's like, happened once yeah. in, in my career. Um, I spent most of the last five years covering the Child Abuse Royal Commission. Mm. And there were moments in there. Uh, a lot of the evidence there would never end up in the paper because there was no place for it in the paper. It was too bad. You couldn't put it in yeah. a family paper. You couldn't report it on the news. 
So you'd hear it and you'd soak it up. There was no release yeah. because you couldn't pass that trauma on in any way and let it disperse. So you, you're kind of like a sponge and you'd fill up with trauma. I can remember one hearing back at the start when we were new to it and the evidence was really brutal. Looking around the room at all the other journalists and every single person was in tears. And there was one day when I'd been covering a particularly bad hearing, I think it was the Salvation Army, and I got a message from my boss saying that they wanted me the day after it finished to go and cover a gang rape in Western Sydney. <laughs> and I just I just started to feel sick, you know, physically mm. sick. And I said, oh, I, yeah, yeah, I'd love to, of course, boss, but I'm really sick. And I went home and I just thought I was sick. And then I got a, a message that afternoon saying, tomorrow we need to really get you onto that gang rape story. And I can remember the whole street started shaking like physically shaking and it was at that point I realized I wasn't physically sick I, w I was mentally traumatized and it's the only time in my career I have refused to do a story so I went back in the next day and I sat down with my chief of staff and I said I'm really sorry I cannot do this story and I, I said to him you know this is what I've seen over the past two weeks at the Royal Commission I can't do another child rape and I thought he was going to erupt. And of course, what he said was, mate, of course, I can't believe we've even asked you, asked you to do that. We're really sorry. And I, I went, the editor got called in and he apologised and they were so good and so protective wow. that um, it really it made a huge difference to me because it knew, I made me realise I had that support. Mm. How did you go about, though, like actually dealing with that yourself, though? Because, you know... In terms of the trauma? Yeah. Yeah, I got an... I eventually got a, a system going where... So with the Royal Commission, you'd get usually two-week hearings, and they were bad. So what I'd do is I'd book in to see a counsellor. I got... Un, everyone where I work gets uh, six free counselling sessions a, a year because they recognise it's traumatic work. Hmm. I get unlimited counselling sessions because of the nature of what I do. And so every time I was doing a Royal Commission hearing, I'd book in and see a counsellor. And I'd go and sit down with them and I'd say, right, basically this is all the stuff I've heard in the last two weeks that I could never put in the paper, which if I don't tell you, I will just carry around with me. And an hour later, I'd walk out feeling a lot better. I don't know how they felt, probably terrible. But, yeah, yeah. but it was a way of just letting that is, it, vicarious trauma just disperse. Yeah. And I think you have to have a coping strategy. Like I know the chairman of the Royal Commission has talked about this and I've talked about it a little bit with him and and I don't know whether he has counselling but he says he plays an awful lot more golf than he used to. He just goes out and he drives golf balls yeah, yeah. and I imagine he drives them really hard. <laughs> so you need you need a, a way to cope. Yeah. You need to you need to admit that you need help you sometimes. need an outlet yeah. and i think that it's it's amazing for you to come on <coughs> to be honest because i think that a lot of people when it comes to trauma do bottle it up and yeah. it is a thing to be done but i mean look like it, it goes a long way to say that someone who has been through the things that you've been through and heard the things you've heard through the, these inquiries you know it, it says a lot that the value of these sessions can have for you, you massively know? just yeah. just knowing that you can talk to people yep. just changes it yeah. Now, I mean, going into this story about Bondi onto lighter. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Going from the hectic into light. Yeah. You, were, you were actually living in Bondi with a couple of a couple of people that we would probably be 
fond of and know quite well here at FBI. Yeah. A couple of members of the herd. Do you yeah. want me asking which which members of the herd they uh, were? Byron and Shannon. So no. Shannon goes by Ozzy Battler. Yeah. Byron, yeah. I can't remember what his herd name is. That's and look, I don't Byron. pretend to be great mates with them. I yeah. lived in, in a house with them for a short period of time. Yeah. Eventually we left. But what an introduction to Australia. Yeah. Like, you know, to come from the UK without really knowing anywhere to somehow, I don't quite know how we ended up in a house directly between Bondi and Tamarama. So you'd walk out and they'd go in any direction and there'd just be a beautiful surf beach. And then to live with those guys and start listening to the herd, who are bloody good. Yeah, they're amazing. Really good. And it was just, you know, it was, it's a time I look back on really fondly because I was discovering Australia as an adult properly. And that was kind of the soundtrack to that. So what are you going to play from for us? Uh, I think it's, I was only 19, isn't it? Has to be. Yeah. Has to be. <laughs> it does. And I saw them perform it live with the guys from Redgum. So they got them up on the stage and played that. And I probably won't forget that gig. You won't. No. Definitely not. <laughs> awesome. I'll just cut into it there. Cool. Um, now we'll talk a little bit about London and working for the BBC and whatnot. Okay. What's the next song we're going on to? Um, Turtles. So, um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Is that good for you? <coughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's right, UK. So, okay. All right. So, you're listening to Out of the Box and FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus. My guest today is Dan Box. He's a national crime reporter for The Australian... Um, mate, now, look, you've done a lot of work in the UK as well as Australia, obviously. You work for the BBC, the Sunday Times yeah. in London. I mean, what was that period of your life like? You know, because a lot of journalists like to go overseas and do a bit of work here and there. You know, it's part of the job, you know. But what was it actually like on the ground? Well, look, my problem is that I actually have spent far more of my life as an adult working in Australia and than I have in London. So I know more people in Australia. So mm. the UK kind of... I'm actually in the process of moving back there. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, and the UK kind of feels a bit almost like an alien country to me now. Like, I've spent <laughs> nine of the past 13 years living in Australia. Yeah. So I don't know the UK that well. Yeah. yeah. I started out in London on the Sunday Times as a business reporter, so covering oil and gas. And I was way, way, way out of my depth. I mean, <laughs> seriously, that year was the hardest I was there for a little bit over a year a couple of months over a year hardest I have ever worked and ever hoped to work like I mean it's hard work that's a proper newspaper and they work bloody hard mm. um, we would do 18 hour days on a Friday so because it was deadline day you'd get in at around I forget what it was nine maybe you'd work through till two in the morning what? In that time, you'd write three news stories and a feature, so about 1,500-word feature plus three news stories. Oh. And then we'd come back in at 9 o'clock the next morning to do the second edition. Like, and that's the end of the week, so the week builds oh, wow. and builds and builds. But that's I learned wild. more I learned more in that year than I probably have ever since. Yeah. Two reasons. One, I was covering oil and gas, and like, that actually is how the world works. Is, you know, yeah. The world turns on money, and, and most of it is oil money. Yeah. So fascinating insight into into you know the reality of the world you live in, and I also worked with a guy called Will Lewis who um, went on to edit the Daily Telegraph. Is now the publisher of Dow Jones. Is probably one of the two finest newspaper men I will ever work with, and he taught me a hell of a lot. Now, at the same time as well, you also met your wife in London. 
Yeah, I did. I met my wife at a party. Well, depends who you believe. She thinks we met earlier, <laughs> but I don't remember it. Um, I'm convinced we met the day we had a party to celebrate England winning the Rugby World Cup. <laughs> so, I'm, Wait, were you, who were you celebrating? <laughs> was, was it a double win for you? No, no, this is the thing. <laughs> There's an old test, like, you know, you know your nationality by who you support on the cricket pitch. For better or for worse, I support England in sport, um, which for most of my life has been pretty thankless. Yeah, It's getting um, better now. It is, it is. We're doing all right now, but it's, <laughs> it's been a sad road to follow for a long time. Um, but going back to the point, so yeah, I met my wife there, and um, she followed me to Australia. She didn't follow me, she came with me to Australia. And then we moved back, and then we moved back to Australia, and, and she's now in the UK as part of our move back. So she's been kind of consigned to this boomerang pom existence as well. Sounds like she must love it, though. She either loves it or she loves me. It's one, <laughs> um, one or the other. <laughs> so the next song is um, Imagine Me and You by the Turtles. And the reason to choose this song is that it's the song we sang at our wedding. And when I say sang, like we had a, a big kind of old hall where we got married in and we stood at the front and all of our friends and family were there. It was standing room only at the back. And we had a choir of like select aunts and cousins up the front and a best mate on the piano. And we all, like 120 of us, sang this song together. And it was probably the most fun I will ever have. Imagine me and you, I do. I think about you day and night. It's only right to think about the girl you love and hold her tight. So happy together If I should call you up Invest a dime And you say you belong to me Lose my mind Imagine how the world could be So very fine So happy together We're happy. 
You're listening to Out of the Box and FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus. My guest today is crime reporter for the Australian, Dan Box. He's also the guy behind the podcast for Bower Reveal, which is about the murders up there. Now, uh, look, the next one you've chosen, you've chosen simply because it's a, an amazing track. But before we get into that, it, it does talk about still water running deeply, which mm. is something that you witness firsthand with the kind of ordinary people and their reactions mm. to these unimaginable circumstances. Now, I mean, can you tell us more about that? Like, what it's like for, you know, people like, I guess, like Matthew Levison's parents and what yeah. they're going through, you know? So, today, just before coming here, I was I was actually at the inquest into Matt Levison's death. Now, an inquest is, is, is essentially a court investigation of a death. And in Matt's case, his parents have been in this absolute prison for the best part of ten years because Matt disappeared... His boyfriend at the time, who was the last person to see him alive, denied anything to do with it, was subsequently charged with murder and found not guilty. And that was that. The, the, the justice system doesn't allow him to be charged again, so his parents were left, although they were convinced of his, of, of his guilt. And we've heard that's been said in the inquest, so mm. I can say it publicly here. So they spent you know, the best part of ten years without help from anyone going out and, and looking for Matt. You know, they would go into the Royal National Park, which is where near where they and, and this guy Michael Atkins lived, at night to simulate the conditions that he disappeared. And they would try and... You know, Matt's dad has told me he would try and think like a killer. How far oh. would I be able to drag a body from my car? Where do you think I would bury it? OK, it's dark, so where would I go? And he'd dig trying to find his son's grave so they they they, from the first trial they knew sort of something about they were suspicious from the start yeah Yeah. they were suspicious from the start and the police were suspicious this guy was charged and 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 what's happened subsequently is an inquest has been called michael atkins has given evidence has been found to have given false evidence under oath which is a crime and has struck a deal with the police where and the state government, where they agree not to prosecute him for giving false evidence in return for showing them where the body is. So you've had a guy who I saw on the stand say, oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure Matt's alive. I think he's in Thailand, you know, starting a new life, who is now saying, yeah, actually, I'll show you where I buried him. It's and wild. It's wild. But in return for an agreement that he will not be prosecuted. So the two things, the fact that he was found not guilty and the fact that he's got this immunity from prosecution means he will never be prosecuted in relation to any of this. But they've got the family back. But the thing that stuck with me, uh, I've, I've, I've spent a bit of time covering this and I've got to know the family a little bit. They're just two of the nicest, most decent people. Every time I call up Mark, who's the dad, first thing he says is, Hi, Dan, how are you? Because he wants to know about me, and I'm really unimportant. <laughs> he's the dad of, of a missing man, and he's asking how I am. And they've welcomed me into their house, you know, sat down in the kitchen, laughing and joking. And, and how it is that two people who are just perfectly normal can be faced that much adversity and stay so strong is exactly that, you know, still waters do run deep wild stuff it really really is does it make you i mean like a bit of a cynic like you how do you feel like coming going through all of this stuff and then being able to look at the world in a bright way i sometimes worry about my own reaction to these things because i can be covering a a murder i can be at the you know the scene where the police are looking for a body 
I can I can be covering um, child abuse case, you know, traumatic stuff, and I don't feel anything anymore. Mm. And I think the reason I don't feel anything is because if I allowed myself to feel what is probably perfectly normal and right to feel, I couldn't wake up tomorrow and do it again mm. and then do it again the next day. And at the moment, that is what I need to do. Whether there'll be a reckoning at some point, I don't know. But at the moment, I sometimes look at myself and I think, Dan, you're not feeling any human emotion. But I don't think I care. I don't think I could. Oh, like the flip side, to take it a bit more lighter, you probably haven't been in a morgue, I'm guessing. Never. Yeah. But I've been in a morgue and I've never heard as much laughter any other workplace. Huh. And I think probably there has to be gallows humour. You have to have a way of dealing with these situations. So those guys there, you know, they're doing autopsies. That's work that could really get you down. Mm. But I heard them laughing, and I've got absolutely no problem with that. I think they mm. should have been laughing, because if they couldn't, they couldn't wake up the next day and come yeah. to work. So you need to find a way of dealing with these situations, because otherwise I think they overwhelm you. So do, am I a cynic? I've certainly seen a lot of badness. Mm. Yeah. That's it. Well, look, we'll get on to the music then. Here's the Velvelettes with Needle in a Haystack.
You've been listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio. My name is Sedge Niggas. My guest today has been crime reporter Dan Box. Now, we've almost run out of time. We've got time for one more track and a bit of a chat. And so you've got to tell us, though, now, because you're, you're running a couple of interesting projects at the moment. What are, what are you up to at the moment, Dan? We're making a documentary. So I work mm-hmm. for a newspaper, and we're making a TV documentary. So it's something we haven't done before. Mm-hmm. And we're doing it because two reasons. One, I think we need to see if we can do it and if it works, because if we don't, if we don't adapt, but I'm not sure how well newspapers will survive. And two, it's a really good way of telling a story. Putting it on TV, and, and we're doing it as sort of six short episodes, which adds up to about an hour of television. So it's a story of a young Aboriginal guy in the Northern Territory who's facing a life sentence in prison for a murder that the judge found he did not physically commit. And we got an hour of television, and we try and unpick that. So how did he end up in jail? What what is it about the laws in the Northern Territory? Can you just, like, just... Because I think that could have gone over our listeners' heads. Yeah. But someone is potentially looking at life in no, jail... No, he is. He's in jail. ...for not having committed a murder. Yeah. He was found guilty of murder, and the judge found that he was not physically there when it took place. But because of the way the laws work in the Northern Territory, the judge had no choice but to give him the mandatory minimum sentence, which is life, meaning life, yeah. with a minimum 20 years non-parole. So, so how does that law actually work? So what, what circumstances led to this, well, not necessarily this person, but if you were to be charged under these laws, what, how could you get charged for them if you weren't in the physical space that someone was murdered in? Well, there's two things in the Northern Territory. So one, if you're charged with murder in the Northern Territory, once you've been charged, even if you are found to have pulled out of the murder at the last minute, which is what this guy says he did, mm-hmm. unless you take what's called reasonable steps to actually prevent the murder happening, uh, then okay. you're found guilty. So, so this is a thing of a hypothetical situation. So say two people decide to go rob a house. Yeah. Um, one of them goes, actually, you know what, I don't want to rob it anymore, and leaves. The other person goes and ends up killing someone. The other robber who was not there could potentially be charged? Yeah. Okay. Unless... He picks up the phone and calls the police. Okay. So in Zach's case, so this this kid is, is Zach Grieve. He's 25 for roundabouts. He said he'd take part in the murder. The last minute he said, I can't do it. And he left. But he didn't pick up the phone and call the police. Yeah. But because of the way the laws work there, the jury wasn't allowed to say, look, we don't think that's murder. The judge had to say to them, you have to find this guy guilty. And they did. <laughs> wow. And then once they found him guilty, the judge said... And I have to give you at least 20 years in jail. And the judge says, and it's the fault of the mandatory sentencing regime, which inevitably brings about injustice. So the judge is saying his own decision is an injustice. (laughs) And what makes it worse is the very last thing. It was a really brutal murder. So a guy got his head caved in. Three people were convicted of murder. Two who were definitely there and, and Zach Grieve, who says he wasn't. And there's no forensic evidence to suggest he was. One of those guys admits to actually being the person who caved their victim's head in with a spanner. He got less time in jail than Zach Grave, who the judge said wasn't there. How does that work? (laughs) Because the guy, because under the mandatory sentencing laws, and this is the thing, the laws up there deserve a bit of close scrutiny. Because (laughs) under the laws up there, the mandatory sentencing laws, you can claim exceptional circumstances if, for example you had been threatened previously by the victim. So Chris Malishko, who beat this guy to death, 
had been threatened previously. So he gets a discount on his sentence. Mm. Zach Grieve, who on Chris's evidence wasn't there, on his own evidence wasn't there, and who there's no forensic evidence was there, can't get that exceptional circumstance. So he has to go down for at least 20 years. <coughs> wow. And that's the way the law absolutely works. Absolutely wild stuff. Well, when and where are we going to be able to see your new project? On that this? is being released uh, from September the... Sorry. That is being released from August the 26th on the Australian's website, and it will roll out over a course of a week. Amazing. We'll definitely look forward to that. We've got one last track that you're going to chuck on for us, though. You've got to tell us why you brought Cat Stevens' Wild World on. I actually pinched this one from a journalist called Christine Amampo, who is one of the, the great modern journalists. She works for, I think, CNN. And she was doing a similar program to this, and I listened to it, and she said this was her last song, and she said it was because she was a mum. And she had a young kid, and I have young kids, and she knew that at some point, she's a war correspondent, she's seen things that are far worse than what I've seen. She said at some point she was going to have to say to her son, right, it's time for you to go into the world, and I want you to enjoy it, but you need to know some about about the badness that's out there. And she said, this Cat Stevens song says that far better than she ever could. And at some point my two daughters are going to have to grow up and go out into the world. And I'm going to have to have that conversation with him. And this song says it far better than I ever will. Dan Box, thank you so much for coming on Out of the Box. Massive pleasure. (laughs) Coming up next is Lunch with Bridie Tanner. Big thanks to my producer, Heather McNabb, and uh, I'll see you soon.
Just remember there's a lot of bad and Remember you like a child